Eleven Hundred Words by Christopher Morley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eleven Hundred Words. The managing editor, the city editor, the production manager, the foreman of the composing room, and the leading editorial writer, having all said to us with a great deal of sternness, your copy for Saturday has got to be upstairs by such and such a time, because we are going to make up the page at so-and-so a.m. We got rather nervous, if we may say so. We did not like the way they said it. They spoke, and we are thinking particularly of the production manager, with a kind of paternal severity that was deeply distressing to our spirit. They are all, in off hours, men of delightfully easy disposition. They are men with whom it would be a pleasure and a privilege to be cast away on a desert island or in a crowded subway train. It is only just to say that they are men whom we admire greatly. When we meet them in the elevator, or see them at Frank's having lunch, how full of jolly intercourse they are. But in the conduct of their passionate and perilous business, that is, getting the paper out on time, a holy anguish shines upon their brows. The stern daughter of the voice of God is whispered to them, and they pass on the whisper to us through a megaphone. That means to say, that within the hour we have got to show up something in the neighborhood of 1,100 words to these magistrates and overseers with these keys. Typewriter keys, of course. We have got to unlock our heart. Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. Speaking of Milton, the damp that fell round his path in Wordsworth's sonnet was nothing to the damp that fell round our alert vestiges as we hastened to the Salamis station in that drench this morning. We ask you to observe our self-restraint. We might have said, drenching downpour of silver Long Island rain, or something of that sort, and thus got several words nearer our necessary total of 1,100. But we scorn, even when writing against time, to take petty advantages. Let us be brief, crisp, packed with thought. Let it stand as drench while you admire our proud conscience. Eleven hundred words. What a lot could be said in eleven hundred words. We stood at the front door of the baggage car. There's an odd irony in this. The leading editorial writer one of the most implacable of our taskmasters, is spending the summer at Seacliff, and he gets the last empty seat left in the smoker. So we, getting on at Salamis, have to stand in the baggage car, watching the engine rock and roar along the rails, while the rain sheeted the level green fields. It is very agreeable to ride on a train in the rain, we have never known just why, but it conduces to thought. 
the clear trickles of water are drawn slantwise across the window panes and one watches absently the curious behavior of the drops they hang bulging and pendulous in one spot for some seconds then as they swell suddenly they break loose and zigzag swiftly down the pane following the slippery pathway that previous drops have made it is like a little puzzle game where you maneuver a weighted capsule among pegs toward a narrow opening pigs and clover they sometimes call it but who knows why the conduct of raindrops on a smoking car window is capricious and odd but we must pass on that topic alone would serve for several hundred words but we will not be opportunist we stood at the front door of the baggage car and in a pleasant haze of the faculties we thought of a number of things we thought of some books we had seen on east fifty-ninth street in that admirable row of old bookshops particularly maori sabin's volume of essays the spirit of life which we are going back to buy one of these days so please let it alone we then got out a small notebook in which we keep memoranda of books we intend to read and pored over it zealously just for fun we will tell you three of the titles we have noted there the voyage of the hoppergrass by e l pearson people and problems by fabian franklin broken stowage by david w bone but most of all we thought in a vague sentimental way about that pleasant long island country through which the carriage was hailing and hallooing all those carloads of audacious commuters only the other day we heard a wise man say that he did not care for long island because one has to travel through a number of half-built suburbs before getting into real country we felt when he said it that it would be impossible for us to tell him how much some of those growing suburbs mean to us for we have lived in them there is not one of those little frame dwellings that doesn't give us a thrill as we buzz past them if you voyage from brooklyn as we do you will have noticed two stations near jamaica called clarenceville and morris park now we have never got off at those stations though we intend to some day but in those rows of small houses and in sudden glimpses of modest tree-lined streets and corner drug stores we can see something that we are not subtle enough to express we see it again in the scrap of green park by the station at queen's and in the brave little public library near the same station which we cannot see from the train though we often try to but we know it is there, and probably the same kindly lady librarian and the children borrowing books. We see it again, or we did the other day, in a field at Mineola, where a number of small boys were flying kites in the warm, clean, softly perfumed air of a July afternoon. We see it in the vivid rows of color 
in the florist meadow at Floral Park. We don't know just what it is, but over all that broad tract of hard-working suburbs, there is a secret spirit of practical and persevering decency that we somehow associate with the soul of America. We see it with the eye of a lover, and we know that it is good. Having got as far as this, we took the trouble to count all the words up to this point. The total is exactly 1,100, and of 1,100 words by Christopher Morley, read by Tom Merritt. An account of a human skeleton of an extraordinary size found in a repository at Repton in Derbyshire, together with some examples of long life, communicated by Simon Degg, M.D. and F.R.S. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Extract from my journal, Friday, July the 15th, 1726. The day favoring us, we set forward from Derby for Repton, alias Reppingdon, and in one hour and two-thirds we arrived at Repton, a town in the Trent famous for the burial of the Mercian kings, whose chief seat was at Tamworth in Staffordshire. This town is likewise remarkable for its free school and its ancient abbey, having viewed the ruins in this town and inquiring for antiquities the inhabitants brought us thomas walker a labourer aged eighty-eight years who gave the following account about forty years since cutting hillocks near the surface he met with an old stone wall when clearing further he found it to be a square enclosure of fifteen foot it had been covered but the top was decayed and fallen in being only supported by wooden joists. In this he found a stone coffin, and with difficulty removing the cover, saw a skeleton of a human body nine foot long, and round it lay one hundred human skeletons, with their feet pointing to the stone coffin. They seemed to be of the ordinary size. The head of the great skeleton he gave to Mr. Bowers, master of the free school. I inquired of his son, one of the present masters, concerning it, but it is lost, yet he says that he remembers the skull in his father's closet, and that he had often heard his father mention the gigantic corpse, and thinks this skull was in proportion to a body of that stature. The bottom of this dormitory was paved with broad flat stones, and in the wall was a door-case with steps to go down to it, whose entrance was forty yards off, nearer the church and river. The steps are stone and much worn. Tis in a close on the north side of the church, and over this repository grows a sycamore, planted by the old man when he filled in the earth. The present owner will not suffer it to be opened, the lady of the manor having forbidden it. This was attested to us by several old people, who had likewise seen and measured the skeleton. Examples of Long Life 
at utoxeter in the moorlands of staffordshire were buried the following number of people at the following ages in the year seventeen o two in fourteen days were buried three women the first a hundred and three the second a hundred and twenty six and one of eighty seven and the same year two sisters and a brother in and of that parish the brother ninety two the youngest sister ninety five the eldest sister ninety eight and in the same parish this present year seventeen twenty six were buried in twenty two days the following aged people august the seventh one woman aged ninety four and one man aged eighty one august the fourth one man aged sixty eight august the nineteenth one man aged eighty seven august the twenty second one man aged eighty two august the twenty third one man aged eighty three total men four total women two in seventeen twenty six at gravely in hertfordshire thirty one miles from london almost every sixth soul is upwards of sixty inhabitants one hundred and eighty seven aged above sixty twenty nine End of An Account of a Human Skeleton of an Extraordinary Size by Simon Degg Birds and Poets with Other Papers by John Burroughs This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Before Beauty Before genius is manliness, and before beauty is power. The Russian novelist and poet, Turgenev, scattered all through whose works you will find unmistakable traits of greatness, makes one of his characters say, speaking of beauty, the old masters, they never hunted after it. It comes of itself into their compositions, God knows whence, from heaven or elsewhere. The whole world belonged to them, but we are unable to clasp its broad spaces. Our arms are too short. From the same depth of insight come these lines from leaves of grass, a propice of true poems. They do not seek beauty, they are sought. Forever touching them, or close upon them, follows beauty, longing, fame, lovesick. The Roman was perhaps the first to separate beauty from use, and to pursue it as ornament merely. He built his grand edifice, its piers, its walls, its walls of brick and concrete, and then gave it a marble envelope copied from the Greek architecture. The latter could be stripped away, as in many cases it was by the hand of time and leave the essentials of the structure nearly complete. Not so with the Greek. He did not seek the beautiful. He was beauty. 
This building had no ornament. It was all structure. In its beauty was a flower of necessity, the charm of inborn fitness and proportion. In other words, his art was structure refined into beautiful forms, not beautiful forms superimposed upon structure as with the Roman. And it is in Greek mythology, is it not? that beauty is represented as riding upon the back of a lion, as she assuredly always does in their poetry and art, rides upon power or terror or savage fate, not only rides upon, but is wedded and incorporated with it. Hence the athletic desire and refreshment her coming imparts. This is the invariable order of nature. Beauty without a rank material basis enfeebles. The world is not thus made. Man is not thus begotten and nourished. It comes to me there is something implied or understood when we look upon a beautiful object that has quite as much to do with the impression made upon the mind as anything in the object itself, perhaps more. There is somehow an immense and undefined background of vast and unconscionable energy, as of earthquakes and ocean storms and cleft mountains, across which things of beauty play and to which they constantly differ. And when this background is wanting, as it is in much current poetry, beauty sickens and dies, or at most has only a feeble existence. Nature does nothing merely for beauty. Beauty follows as the inevitable result, and the final impression of health and finish which her works make upon the mind is owing as much to those things which are not technically called beautiful as to those which are. The former give identity to the latter. The one is to the other what substance is to form or bone to flesh. The beauty of nature includes all that is called beautiful as its flower and all that is not called beautiful as its stalk and roots. Indeed, when I go to the woods or the fields or ascend to the hilltop, I do not seem to be gazing upon beauty at all, but to be breathing it like the air. I am not dazzled or astonished. I am in no hurry to look lest it be gone. I would not have the litter and debris removed, or the banks trimmed, or the ground painted. What I enjoy is commensurate with the earth and sky itself. It clings to the rocks and trees. It is kindred to the roughness and savagery. It rises from every tangle and chasm. It perches on the dry oak stubs with the hawks and buzzards. The crows shed it from their wings and weave it into their nests of coarse sticks. The fox barks it, the cattle low it, and every mountain path leads to its haunts. 
I am not a spectator of, but a participator in it. It is not an adornment. Its roots strike to the center of the earth. All true beauty in nature or in art is like the iridescent hue of mother of pearl, which is intrinsic and necessary, being the result of the arrangement of the particles, the flowering of the mechanism of the shell, or like the beauty of health, which comes out of and reaches back again to the bones and the digestion. There is no grace like the grace of strength. What sheer muscular gripe and power lie back of the firm, delicate notes of the great violinist. Wit, says Hain, and the same thing is true of beauty. Isolated is worthless. It is only endurable when it rests on a solid basis. In fact, Beauty as a separate and distinct thing does not exist. Neither can it be reached by any sorting or sifting or clarifying process. It is an experience of the mind and must be preceded by certain conditions, just as light is an experience of the eye and sound of the ear. To attempt to manufacture beauty is as vain as to attempt to manufacture truth. And to give it to us in poems or any form of art without a lion of some sort, a lion of truth or fitness or power, is to emasculate it and destroy its volition. But current poetry is, for the most part, an attempt to do this very thing to give us beauty without beauty's antecedents and foil. The poets want to spare us the annoyance of the beast. Since beauty is the chief attraction, why not have this part alone, pure and unadulterated? Why not pluck the plumage from the bird, the flower from its stalk, the moss from the rock, the shell from the shore, the honey bag from the bee, and thus have it brief what pleases us. Hence, with rare exceptions, one feels on opening the latest book of poems, like exclaiming, Well, here is a beautiful at last divested of everything else, of truth, of power, of utility, and one may add of beauty too, it charms a scholar of flowers, of jewels, of perfume charms, and that is the end of it. It is ever present to the true artist in his attempt to report nature that every object as it stands in the circuit of cause and effect has a history which involves its surroundings and that the depth of the interest which it awakens in us is in proportion as its integrity in this respect is preserved. In nature we are prepared for an opulence of color or of vegetation, or freak or form or display of any kind, because of the preponderance of the common ever-present feature of the earth. The foil is always at hand. 
In like manner, in the master poems, we are never surfeited with mere beauty. Woe to any artist who disengages beauty from the wide background of rudeness, darkness and strength and disengages her from absolute nature. The mild and beneficent aspects of nature, what gulfs and abysses of power underlie them. The great shaggy barbaric earth, yet the summing up, the plenum of all we know or can know of beauty. So the orbic poems of the world have a foundation as of the earth itself and are beautiful because they are something else first. Homer chose for his groundwork war, clinching, tearing, tugging war. In Dante, it is hell. In Milton, Satan and the fall. In Shakespeare, it is the fierce feudal world with its towering and kingly personalities. In Byron, it is revolt and diabolic passion. When we get to Tennyson, the lion is a good deal tamed, but he is still there in the shape of the proud, haughty and manly Norman and in many forms yet stimulates the mind. The perception of cosmical beauty comes by a vital original process. It is in some measure a creative act and those works that rest upon it make demands, perhaps extraordinary ones, upon the reader or the beholder. We regard mere surface glitter or mere verbal sweetness in a mood entirely passive and with a pleasure entirely profitless. The beauty of excellent stage scenery seems much more obvious and easy of apprehension than the beauty of trees and hills themselves, inasmuch as the act of association in the mind is much easier and cheaper than the act of original perception. Only the greatest works in any department afford any explanation of this wonder we call nature or aid the mind in arriving at correct notions concerning it. To copy here and there a line or a trait is no explanation, but to translate nature into another language, to bridge it to us, to repeat in some sort the act of creation itself, is the crowning triumph of poetic art. After the critic has enumerated all the stock qualities of the poet as taste, fancy, melody, it remains to be said that unless there is something in him that is living identity, something analogous to the growing, pushing, reproducing forces of nature, all the rest in the end pass for but little. This is perhaps what the German critic Lessing really means by action, for true poems are more like deeds expressive of something behind, more like acts of heroism or devotion or like personal character than like thoughts or intellections. All the master poets have in their work an interior chemical assimilative property, a sort of gastric juice which dissolves thought and form and holds in vital fusion religions, times, races and the theory of their own construction naming up with electric and defiant power, power without any admixture of resisting form as in a living organism.
there is in nature two types or forms, the cell and the crystal. One means the organic, the other the inorganic. One means growth, development, life. The other means reaction, solidification, rest. The hint and model of all creative works is the cell, critical, reflective and philosophical works are nearer akin to the crystal, while there is much good literature that is neither the one nor the other distinctively, but which in a measure touches and includes both. But crystallic beauty or cut and polished gems of thought, the result of the reflex rather than the direct action of the mind, we do not expect to find in the best poems, though they may be most prized by specially intellectual persons. In the immortal poems, the solids are very few, or do not appear at all as solids, as lime and iron, any more than they do in organic nature, in the flesh of the peach or the apple. The main thing in every living organism is the vital fluids. Seven-tenths of man is water, and seven-tenths of Shakespeare is passion, emotion, fluid humanity. Out of this arise his forms, as Venus arose out of the sea, and as man is daily built up out of the liquids of the body. We cannot taste, much less assimilate, a solid until it becomes a liquid, and your great idea, your sermon or moral, lies upon your poem a dead, cumbrous mass unless there is adequate heat and solvent, emotional power. Herein, I think, Wordsworth's excursion fails as a poem. It has too much solid matter. It is an overfreighted bark that does not ride the waves buoyantly and lifelike, far less so than Tennyson's In Memoriam which is just as truly a philosophical poem as the excursion. Wordsworth is the fresher poet. His poems seem really to have been written in the open air and to have been brought directly under the oxygenating influence of outdoor nature, while in Tennyson this influence seems tempered or farther removed. The physical cosmos itself is not a thought, but an act. Natural objects do not affect us like well-wrought specimens or finished handicraft, which have nothing to follow but as living, procreating energy. Nature is perpetual transition. Everything passes and presses on. There is no pause, no completion, no explanation. To produce and multiply endlessly, without ever reaching the last possibility of excellence and without committing herself to any end is the law of nature. These considerations bring us very near the essential difference between prose and poetry, or rather between the poetic and the didactic treatment of a subject. The essence of creative art is always the same, namely, interior movement and fusion, while the method of the didactic or prosaic treatment is fixity, limitation. 
The latter must formulate and define, but the principle of the former is to flow, to suffuse, to mount, to escape. We can conceive of life only as something constantly becoming. It plays forever on the verge. It is never in loco, but always in transitu. Arrest the wind, and it is no longer the wind. Close your hands upon the light, and behold, it is gone. The antithesis of art and method is science, as Coleridge has intimated. As the latter aims at the particular, so the former aims at the universal. One would have truth of detail, the other truth of ensemble. The method of science may be symbolized by the straight line, that of art by the curve. The results of science, relatively to its aim, must be parts and pieces, while art must give the whole in every act, not quantitatively of course, but qualitatively, by the integrity of the spirit in which it works. The Greek mind will always be the type of the artist mind, mainly because of its practical bent, its healthful objectivity. The Greek never looked inward but outward. Criticism and speculation were foreign to him. His head shows a very marked predominance of the motive and perceptive powers over the reflective. The expression of the face is never what we call intellectual or thoughtful but commanding. His gods are not philosophers but delight in deeds, justice, rulership. Among the differences between the modern and the classical aesthetic mind is the greater precision and definiteness of the latter. The modern genius is gothic and demands in art a certain vagueness and spirituality like that of music, refusing to be grasped and formulated. Hence for us, this is undoubtedly an improvement. There must always be something about a poem, or any work of art, besides the evident intellect or plot of it, of what is on its surface or what it tells. This something is the invisible, the undefined, almost unexpressed, and is perhaps the best part of any work of art, as it is of a noble personality. To amuse, to exhibit culture, to formulate the aesthetic or even to excite the emotions is by no means all, is not even the deepest part. Besides these, and enclosing all, is a general impalpable effect like good air or the subtle presence of good spirits, wordless but more potent far than words. As in the superbest person, it is not merely what he says or knows or shows or even how he behaves, but the silent qualities like gravitation that insensibly but resistlessly hold us, so in a good poem or in any other expression of art. End of chapter 8 Before Beauty Birds and Poets with other papers by John Burroughs. Read by Mahima Raj.
Elizabeth Cochrane from Woman of the Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2021. Cochrane, Miss Elizabeth, author, journalist, and traveler, known the world over by her pen name Nellie Bly. Born in Cochrane Mills, Pennsylvania, 5th May, 1867, a place named after her father, who was a lawyer, and for several terms filled the office of associate judge of Armstrong County, Pennsylvania. She is a descendant on her father's side of Lord Cochrane, the famous English admiral, who was noted for his deeds of daring, and who was never happy unless engaged in some exciting affair. Miss Cochrane's great-grandfather Cochrane was one of a number of men who wrote a Declaration of Independence in Maryland near the South Mountains a long time before the historic Declaration of Independence was delivered to the world. Her great-grandfather on her mother's side was a man of wealth, owning at one time almost all of Somerset County, Pennsylvania. His name was Kennedy, and his wife was a nobleman's daughter. They eloped and fled to America. He was an officer, as were his two sons, in the Revolutionary War. Afterward, he was sheriff of Somerset County repeatedly, until old age compelled him to decline the office. One of his sons, Thomas Kennedy, Miss Cochrane's grand-uncle, made a flying trip around the world, starting from and returning to New York City, where his wife awaited his arrival. It took him three years to make the trip, and he returned in shattered health. He at once set about to write the history of his trip, but his health became so bad that he had to give up his task. Her father died while Elizabeth was yet a child. She was educated at home until 1880, when she was sent to Indiana, Pennsylvania, where she remained in a boarding school until 1881. Impaired health forced her to leave school, and she returned home. The family moved to Pittsburgh, and there she began her literary career. She saw an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch entitled, What Girls Are Good For. She wrote a reply to the article, and though the reply was not published, a paragraph appeared in the dispatch the day after she sent the communication, asking for the writer's name. Miss Cochrane sent her name and received a letter from the editor, requesting her to write an article on the subject of girls and their spheres in life for the Sunday dispatch. This she did. The article was printed, and the same week she received a check for it and a request for something else. Her next subject was divorce, and at the end of the article appeared the now famous signature Nellie Bly. Miss Cochrane assumed it on the suggestion of George A. Madden, managing editor of the Dispatch, who got it from Stephen Forster's popular song. The divorce article attracted attention. She was invited to the office and made arrangements to accept a salary and devote her time to the Dispatch. Taking an artist with her, she went through the factories and workshops of Pittsburgh and described and pictured the condition of the working girls. The articles made a hit. Miss Cochrane became society editor of the Dispatch and also looked after the dramatic and art department, 
all for a salary of ten dollars per week she decided to go to mexico to write about its people at that time she was receiving fifteen dollars per week she went and her letters printed in the dispatch were full of interest and were widely copied she had never been out of her state before but she travelled everywhere in mexico that a railroad could take her her mother was her companion on that trip returning to pittsburgh she became dissatisfied with that field quit the dispatch and went to new york city she did syndicate work for a while one day she lost her pocketbook and all the money she possessed she was too proud to let her friends know and she sat down and thought before that she had written to the world asking the privilege of going in the balloon the world was about sending up at st louis but as final arrangements had been completed her suggestion was not favorably received now finding herself penniless she made a list of a half dozen original ideas and went to the world office determined to see mr pulitzer and offer them to him having no letter of introduction and being unknown she found it almost an impossibility to gain an audience for three hours she talked and expostulated with different employees before she finally exhausted their denials and was ushered into the unwilling presence of mr pulitzer and his editor john a cockerell once there they listened to her ideas and immediately offered her twenty-five dollars to give them three days in which to consider her suggestions at the end of that time she was told that her idea to feign insanity and as a patient investigate the treatment of the insane in the blackwell island asylum was accepted miss ply did that with such marked success and originality of treatment and attracted so much attention that she secured a permanent place on the world staff she originated a new field in journalism which has since been copied all over the world by her many imitators her achievements since her asylum expose have been many and brilliant scarcely a week passed that she had not some novel feature in the world her fame grew and her tasks enlarged until they culminated in the wonderful tour of the world in seventy-two days six hours eleven minutes and fourteen seconds that idea she proposed to mr pulitzer one year before he approved and accepted it owing to delayed steamers miss ply lost fifteen days on land but she was the first to conceive and establish a record for a fast trip around the world since miss cochrane girdled the globe others have repeated the feat in less time her newspaper work resulted in many reforms her expose of asylum abuses procured an appropriation of three million dollars for the benefit of the poor insane in addition to beneficial changes in care and management her expose of the king of the lobby rid albany of its greatest disgrace her station-house expose procured matrons for new york police stations her expose of a noted electric doctor's secret rid brooklyn of a notorious swindler miss cochrane left journalism to do literary work for a weekly publication she is now a resident of new york end of elizabeth cochrane from woman of the century this is a librivox recording 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betty B. An Equatorial Chinese Wedding by Mabel Loomis Todd. Far down in the China Sea, where it begins to think about joining the Java Sea, below the Straits of Malacca lies the little Dutch island of Riau. Like all other tropical countries of the Orient, the Luga group is full of Chinese. Many Malay, Javanese, and Siamese cities present the general appearance of being chiefly inhabited by celestials, their own natives playing, but secondary parts in daily affairs. Throughout numerous regions of the Antipodes, protector of the Chinese is the technical title of important officials, many of whom speak and read the difficult language. Being scholars deeply versed in the literary treasures of this oldest of civilizations. Over the especial group of islands, of which Riau is one, the Sultan of Luga exercises a certain control under Dutch sovereignty. Here the official in charge of Chinese interests is a Dutch gentleman of wide attainments, through whose courtesy we attended a Chinese wedding of much splendor during the summer just past. Approaching the bridegroom's house, a sort of cage was seen suspended over the entrance sign royal that the bride had come was within and might be inspected by the favored a stage draped in superb embroideries was erected in the street immediately opposite the doorway whereon many actors elaborately and richly arrayed were perpetrating plays of interminable length extremely dramatic the performers were stamping about in despair dying with much realism, stiffening in wild alarms, trembling in abject terror, and otherwise exhibiting mixed and violent emotions, with facial expressions to match. Somebody nearly related to the emperor had been murdered in jest, and Nemesis was in process of arriving. But it might be days and nights, yet before the play was finished and the story told to its ending. A solid mass of admiring humanity watched the play with breathless interest. In the wide covered space between stage and house, tables were spread with dainty sweetmeats and exquisite little silver forks to lift them from the artistic dishes. Here sat only invited guests, but anyone might watch the play outside. In the first floor rooms of the house were other tables, where friends of a still deeper grade of intimacy were entertained at supper but even here were subtle distinctions, furniture of finely carved wood, the chairs inlaid with marble seats and mother-of-pearl decoration, delicate china, ivory chopsticks, for the upper-class relatives and friends, stools, coarse china, and black chopsticks for those of lower degree, each to his own. The bridegroom, a big, fat, handsome boy of seventeen, with a kindly, intelligent face, and dressed in a gorgeous peacock green brocade robe with a mandarin hat was assiduously looking after his friends his fine old father likewise playing hospitable host most courteously in glass cases were portrait figures of father and mother carved and colored perfect in every detail of likeness with no wrinkle omitted through several rooms of feasting guests we made our way past a rear apartment where servants were making merry, and so up a finely polished stairway to the center of all the festivities, the little bride herself. 
his upper room was intensely hot lighted by scores of flaring lamps and candles and filled with women friends the heroine of the celebration a gentle little maiden of seventeen was seated on a stool her black hair elaborately arranged hands meekly folded eyes cast down while an old woman standing close beside her was vigorously fanning the stifling air into some semblance of a breeze even then it seemed incredible that she should not faint under the burden of her apparel six deep piled the gorgeous embroideries on her poor little body three or four scalloped capes of different lengths coats short and long petticoats of diverse shapes and underneath the accumulation a thickly pleated skirt showing the finest embroidery of all though each garment was stiff with gold and flowers of all shades in delicate stitches upon the rich silks the smooth hair bore two thousand dollars worth of gold and silver ornaments and precious stones in daggers and pins and dragons but never a word said the demure little bride or a movement made except once as the perspiration dripped from her chin to look up in a helpless sort of way at the peering faces all about in parts of china the ordeal is worse for it is considered the best of form and particularly salutary for everybody to make audible comment of bitter tenor and in tones modulated for the certain hearing of their victim her clothes are very common what hideous hands how awkwardly she sits being a few of the gentle remarks frequently levelled at the innocent and unoffending subject these and the like are flung at her not only for hours but during several successive days here the remarks were but occasional and not very biting in character behind the bride with her modest downcast eyes was an open doorway leading to the bridal chamber where stood a gorgeous bed of carved teak the canopy frame particularly rich in heavy flowers and leaves in high relief the hangings and covers were of scarlet embroidered in gold and silver while suspended ornaments of silver diversified the upper frame with exceedingly valuable decoration a case of carved wood with glass doors contained shelves upon which neatly folded were silk sarongs and robes of many sorts tiny shoes petticoats and more silver and gold the little lady's whole dowry of riches in a corner stood a table bearing two enormous silver candlesticks in which flared huge flames behind them against the wall were fantastically arranged towers and pyramids of attractive color and texture monuments of sweetmeats in front a heavy silver teapot and two silver cups and saucers during the forenoon the young couple had sat for a few moments at the table making a pretense of taking breakfast together this was the gist of the whole ceremony and clinched the matter all the rest was mere externals non-essential to the heart of the occasion i tried to make the gentle bride lift her eyes and at least smile a farewell as we left her but the most we could obtain was a flicker of the eyelids which we interpreted into a friendly goodbye. End of an equatorial Chinese wedding by Mabel Loomis Todd. The heroism of a pioneer girl, 
by Lewis Appleton Barker from Adventure, January 1, 1924. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. The Heroism of a Pioneer Girl by Lewis Appleton Barker proud as we may be of the many courageous and daring acts of the early male settlers on the western frontier those of their women will not suffer any by comparison out of many such the following example of both moral and physical heroism in a mere girl seems particularly worthy of relation there is no name blacker in the annals of the early indian wars than that of simon gertie he was an offspring of crime his father being a sot and his mother a woman of no character captured by the indians after braddock's defeat he was adopted by the senecas outdid them in savagery and exercised his innate wickedness for twenty years during which his name was a synonym of terror in the ohio country in the summer of 1777 with about 400 Indian warriors he invested Fort Henry situated on the site of what is now the city of Wheeling appearing before the little stockade early on the morning of September 1st the settlers having warned of his approach were all in the fort the reconnoitering party under Captain Mason being ambushed more than half of them were killed as were all but four of twelve men who sallied out under captain ogle to assist them the garrison was thus reduced at the very start to only twelve men and youths among whom were colonel shepherd and ebenezer and silas zane although encumbered with women and children colonel shepherd's reply to gertie's demand for surrender was that the garrison should never be surrendered so long as an american was left to defend it the besiegers outnumbering the besieged fully forty-fold for six hours they kept up an ineffectual fire at noon the indians retired to the base of wheeling hill it was then that the little garrison discovered that their powder was nearly exhausted ebenezer zane remembered that in his cabin sixty yards away was a keg of powder it was apparently certain death to go for it and colonel shepherd refusing to order anyone on such a mission called for volunteers every man present demanded the privilege of going and so great was the contention for the honor that elizabeth zane a sister of ebenezer and silas begged permission to be the messenger she was but a young girl having just returned from completing her studies at philadelphia and though totally unaccustomed to border warfare had been doing her part in casting bullets making cartridges and loading rifles at first she was peremptorily denied but upon her urging that her life was of less value than that of a man consent was at last wrung from them fearlessly passing the gate she boldly walked across the space to her brother's door 
the savages watching in silent amazement but when she reappeared bearing a keg of powder and sped with the utmost fleetness toward the fort they awoke from their lethargy and sent volley after volley in her direction but providentially not a bullet touched her reaching the blockhouse in safety the much-needed powder reheartened a little band to repulse the attack that was made at two o'clock at four of the next morning captain swearingen and fourteen men fought their way in without loss and when at daybreak major mcculloch arrived with reinforcements of forty men gertie and his fellow savages gave up all hope of ultimate success so setting fire to everything without the palisades and slaughtering all the cattle within reach they raised the siege departing for the wilds the garrison did not lose a defender during the siege the twenty-three who were slain having been killed before it really commenced the fact that the enemy lost from sixty to a hundred together with the other surrounding circumstances renders the defense of fort henry one of the most remarkable of the many conflicts of the period the end of the heroism of a pioneer girl by lewis appleton barker safety measures are being taken and do's and don'ts for influenza prevention published in the douglas island news douglas alaska friday november fifteenth nineteen eighteen this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Safety measures are being taken. Everyone in Douglas required to wear flu mask to prevent spread of disease. Starting the first of the week, the city health authorities, with the sanction of the Territorial Board of Health, made it compulsory for everyone in Douglas to wear a mask while away from their homes, and swore in J.D. Bagley as a special officer to see that the law was obeyed. There were a few arrests and the maximum penalty of $25 being assessed against the ones disobeying the orders. The wearing of masks has now become general. At Treadwell, notices were posted asking the employees to wear masks, and they have all obeyed. Travel between Douglas and Juneau has stopped except in cases where it is absolutely necessary, and the ferry trips have been cut to four a day, which are leaving Juneau at 7.10 a.m., 9 a.m., 3.10 p.m., and 4.40 p.m., calling at Thane before returning by way of Douglas. No passengers are taken on at Treadwell for Juneau. Passengers to and from Juneau must wear masks at all times when going to and from the ferry, and a watchman is on hand to see that these rules are complied with. Besides these precautions, persons are asked not to congregate in crowds or to linger in business houses, and signs to that effect have been posted. To all these measures, Douglas can owe its almost complete freedom from influenza, there being but three cases on the island. The three are Miss Esther Nelson and her little sister, daughters of Anton Nelson, of 3rd Street, Douglas, and Gust Johnson of Treadwell, who is at the hospital. These cases can be directly traced as Miss Nelson was employed out of town until recently and traveled back and forth shortly before becoming sick with the disease. Mr. Johnson, who is a relative of the Nelsons, became infected from visiting the house before the doctor was called in and a quarantine declared. 
with a couple of hundred cases of the flu in juneau many at ketchikan haines and other alaskan cities if any steps can be taken in this city to prevent it from getting a start here it is certain that every citizen should do all in his power to aid the authorities in charge at seattle an analysis has been made of the cases and it has been found that the face mask is a positive preventative if used according to instructions which are as follows influenza mask should be large enough to extend well above the nose and below the mouth covering both and wide enough to cover the whole front of the face below the eyes the mask is made of gauze and should be of four thicknesses with four strings holding the mask in place attached to each corner and tied at the back of the head two above the ears and two below the mask should be so adjusted that nothing can escape the nose or mouth or enter it either while the mask is in place the mask should be worn at all times excepting in your own home to be effectual to sterilize mask boil for fifteen minutes once a day especially at night to be ready for use in the morning always wear the mask with the same side to the face the outer side can be marked by black thread which can always be seen don't have the mask too tight and then it will not be uncomfortable have it just tight enough to be held in place do's and don'ts for influenza prevention wear a mask live a clean healthy life keep the pores open that is bathe frequently wash your hands before each meal live in an abundance of fresh air day and night keep warm get plenty of sleep gargle frequently and always after having been out with a solution of salt in water half teaspoon of salt to one glass eight ounces of water report early symptoms to the doctor at once respect the quarantine regulations avoid crowds you can get the influenza only by being near someone who is infected avoid persons who sneeze or cough do not neglect your mask do not disregard the advice of a specialist just because you do not understand do not disregard the rights of a community obey cheerfully the rules issued by the authorities do not think you are entitled to special privileges do not go near other people if you have a cold or fever you may expose them to the influenza and death see the doctor do not think it is impossible for you to get or transmit influenza keep your hands out of your mouth do not cough or sneeze in the open do not use a public towel or drinking cup do not visit the sick or handle articles from the sick room don't worry end of safety measures are being taken and do's and don'ts for influenza prevention printed in the douglas island news douglas alaska friday november fifteenth nineteen eighteen Königstein by Encyclopedia Britannica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Königstein, a town of Germany in the Kingdom of Saxony, situated in a deep valley on the left bank of the Elbe, at the influx of the Biela, in the centre of Saxon Switzerland twenty-five miles southeast of dresden by the railway to bodenbach and tetschen it contains a roman church and a protestant church a monument to the composer julius otto and has some small manufactures of machinery celluloid paper vinegar and buttons it is chiefly remarkable for the huge fortress lying immediately to the northwest of the town which crowns a sandstone rock rising abruptly from the elbe to a height of seven hundred and twenty feet 
Across the Elbe lies the Lilienstein, a similar formation, but unfortified. The fortress of Königstein was probably a Slav stronghold as early as the 12th century, but it is not mentioned in chronicles before the year 1241, when it was a fief of Bohemia. In 1401 it passed to the Margraves of Meisen, and by the Treaty of Eger in 1459 it was formally ceded by Bohemia to Saxony. About 1540 the works were strengthened, and the place was used as a point d'appui against inroads from Bohemia, hence the phrase frequently employed by historians that Königstein is quote-unquote the key to Bohemia. As a fact, the main road from Dresden into that country lies across the hills several miles to the southwest, and the fortress has exercised little, if any, influence in strategic operations, either during the Middle Ages or in modern times. It was further strengthened under the electors Christian I, John George I, and Frederick Augustus II of Saxony, the last of whom completed it in its present form. During the Prussian invasion of Saxony in 1756, it served as a place of refuge for the King of Poland, Augustus III, as it did also in 1849, during the Dresden insurrection of May in that year, to the King of Saxony, Frederick Augustus II, and his ministers. It was also occupied by the Prussians in 1869, who retained possession of it until the peace of 1871. It is garrisoned by detachments of several Saxon infantry regiments, and serves as a treasure-house for the state, and also as a place of detention for officers sentenced to fortress imprisonment. A remarkable feature of the place is a well, hewn out of the solid rock to a depth of 470 feet. End of Königstein by Encyclopædia Britannica The Ladies by Mark Twain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ryan Williams Delivered at the Anniversary Festival, 1872, of the Scottish Corporation of London, Mr. Clemens replied to the toast, the ladies. I am proud, indeed, of the distinction of being chosen to respond to this especial toast to the ladies, or to women, if you please, for that is the preferable term, perhaps. It is certainly the older, and therefore the more entitled to reverence. I have noticed that the Bible, with that plain, blunt honesty which is such a conspicuous characteristic of the scriptures, is always particular to never refer to even the illustrious mother of all mankind as a lady, but speaks of her as a woman. It is odd, but you will find it so. I am peculiarly proud of this honor, because I think that the toast to women is one which, by right and by every rule of gallantry, should take precedence of all others, of the army, of the navy, of even royalty itself. Perhaps, though the latter is not necessary in this day and in this land, for the reason that, tacitly, you do drink a broad general health to all good women when you drink the health of the Queen of England and the Princess of Wales. I have in mind a poem just now which is familiar to you all, familiar to everybody, and what an inspiration that was, 
and how instantly the present toast recalls the verses to all our minds when the most noble the most gracious the purest and sweetest of all poets says woman o oh woman ere wom however you remember the lines and you remember how feelingly how daintily how almost imperceptibly the verses raise up before you feature by feature the ideal of a true and perfect woman and how as you contemplate the finished marvel your homage grows into worship of the intellect that could create so fair a thing out of mere breath mere words and you call to mind now as i speak how the poet with stern fidelity to the history of all humanity delivers this beautiful child of his heart and his brain over to the trials and sorrows that must come to all sooner or later that abide in the earth and how the pathetic story culminates in that apostrophe so wild so regretful so full of mournful retrospection the lines run thus alas alas uh, alas 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 and so on i do not remember the rest but taken together it seems to me that poem is the noblest tribute to woman that human genius has ever brought forth and i feel that if i were to talk hours i could not do my great theme completer or more graceful justice than i have now done in simply quoting that poet's matchless words the phases of the womanly nature are infinite in their variety take any type of woman and you shall find in it something to respect something to admire something to love and you shall find the whole joining you heart and hand who is more patriotic than joan of arc who was braver who has given us a grander instance of self-sacrificing devotion ah you remember you remember well what a throb of pain what a great tidal wave of grief swept over us all when joan of arc fell at waterloo who does not sorrow for the loss of sappho the sweet singer of israel who among us does not miss the gentle ministrations the softening influences the humble piety of lucretia borgia who can join in the heartless libel that says woman is extravagant in dress when he can look back and call to mind our simple and lowly mother eve arrayed in her modification of the highland costume sir women have been soldiers women have been painters women have been poets as long as language lives the name of cleopatra will live and not because she conquered george the third but because she wrote these divine lines let dogs delight to bark and bite for god hath made them so the story of the world is adorned with the names of illustrious ones of our own sex some of them sons of st andrew too scott bruce burns the warrior wallace ben nevis the gifted ben lamond and the great new scotchman ben disraeli out of the great plains of history tower whole mountain ranges of sublime women the queen of sheba josephine semiramis sayeri gamp the list is endless but i will not call the mighty roll the names rise up in your own memories at the mere suggestion luminous with the glory of deeds that cannot die 
hallowed by the loving worship of the good and the true of all epochs and all climes. Suffice it for our pride and our honor that we in our day have added to it such names as those of Grace Darling and Florence Nightingale. Woman is all that she should be, gentle, patient, long-suffering, trustful, unselfish, full of generous impulses. It is her blessed mission to comfort the sorrowing, plead for the erring, encourage the faint of purpose, succor the distressed, uplift the fallen, befriend the friendless, in a word, afford the healing of her sympathies and a home in her heart for all the bruised and persecuted children that knock at its hospitable door. And when I say, God bless her, there is none among us who has known the ennobling affection of a wife or the steadfast devotion of a mother, but in his heart will say, Amen. End of The Ladies by Mark Twain Reading by Ryan Williams A Manual of Education by Stephen Leacock This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Literary Lapses, A Manual of Education The few selections below are offered as a specimen page of a little book which I have in course of preparation. Every man has somewhere in the back of his head the wreck of a thing which he calls his education. My book is intended to embody in concise form these remnants of early instruction. Educations are divided into splendid educations, thorough classical educations, and average educations. All very old men have splendid educations. All men who apparently know nothing else have thorough classical educations. Nobody has an average education. An education, when it is all written out on foolscap, covers nearly ten sheets. It takes about six years of severe college training to acquire it. Even then, a man often finds that he somehow hasn't got his education just where he can put his thumb on it. When my little book of eight or ten pages has appeared, everybody may carry his education in his hip pocket. Those who have not had the advantage of an early training will be enabled by a few hours of conscientious application to put themselves on an equal footing with the most scholarly. The selections are chosen entirely at random. 1. Remains of Astronomy Astronomy teaches the correct use of the sun and the planets. These may be put on a frame of little sticks and turned around. This causes the tides. Those at the ends of the sticks are enormously far away. From time to time, a diligent searching of the sticks reveals new planets. The orbit of a planet is the distance the stick goes round in going round. Astronomy is intensely interesting. It should be done at night in a high tower in Spitzbergen. This is to avoid the astronomy being interrupted. A really good astronomer can tell when a comet is coming too near him by the warning buzz of the revolving sticks. 2. Remains of History Aztecs, a fabulous race, half man, half horse, half mound builder. They flourished at about the same time as the early Calithumpians. They have left some awfully stupendous monuments of themselves somewhere. Life of Caesar, 
a famous Roman general, the last who ever landed in Britain without being stopped at the custom house, on returning to his Sabine farm to fetch something, he was stabbed by Brutus and died with the words Veni vidi tecal opartium in his throat. The jury returned a verdict of strangulation. A life of Voltaire, a Frenchman, very bitter. Life of Schopenhauer, a German, very deep, but it was not really noticeable when he sat down. Life of Dante, an Italian, the first to introduce the banana and the class of street organ known as Dante's Inferno. Peter the Great, comma, Alfred the Great, comma, Frederick the Great, comma, John the Great, comma, Tom the Great, Jim the Great, Joe the Great, etc., etc. It is impossible for a busy man to keep these apart. They sought a living as kings and apostles and pugilists and so on. 3. Remains of Botany Botany is the art of plants. Plants are divided into trees, flowers, and vegetables. The true botanist knows a tree as soon as he sees it. He learns to distinguish it from a vegetable by merely putting his ear to it. 4. Remains of Natural Science Natural science treats of motion and force. Many of its teachings remain as part of an educated man's permanent equipment in life. Such are a. The harder you shove a bicycle, the faster it will go. This is because of natural science. b. If you fall from a high tower, you fall quicker and quicker and quicker. A judicious selection of a tower will ensure any rate of speed. c. If you put your thumb in between two cogs, it will go on and on until the wheels are arrested by your suspenders. This is machinery. D. Electricity is of two kinds, positive and negative. The difference is, I presume, that one kind comes a little more expensive but is more durable. The other is a cheaper thing, but the moths get into it. End of A Manual of Education by Stephen Leacock Read by Sandra Nature and Functions of the House of Commons by Edmund Burke This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Whatever alterations time and the necessary accommodation of business may have introduced, this character can never be sustained unless the House of Commons shall be made to bear some stamp of the actual disposition of the people at large. It would, among public misfortunes, be an evil more natural and tolerable that the House of Commons should be infected with every epidemical frenzy of the people, as this would indicate some co-sanguinity, some sympathy of nature with their constituents, than that they should in all cases be wholly untouched by the opinions and feelings of the people out of doors. By this want of sympathy they would cease to be a house of commons, for it is not the derivation of the power of that house from the people which makes it in a distinct sense their representative. The king is the representative of the people, so are the lords, so are the judges. They all are trustees for the people, as well as the commons, 
because no power is given for the sole sake of the holder, and although government certainly is an institution of divine authority, yet its forms and the persons who administer it all originate from the people. A popular origin cannot therefore be the characteristical distinction of a popular representative. This belongs equally to all parts of government and in all forms. The virtue, spirit, and essence of a house of commons consists in its being the express image of the feelings of the nation. It was not instituted to be a control upon the people, as of late it has been taught, by a doctrine of the most pernicious tendency. It was designed as a control for the people. Other institutions have been formed for the purpose of checking popular excesses, and they are, I apprehend, fully adequate to their object. If not, they ought to be made so. The House of Commons, as it was never intended for the support of peace and subordination, is miserably appointed for that service. Having no stronger weapon than its mace, and no better officer than its sergeant-at-arms, which it can command of its own proper authority. A vigilant and jealous eye over executory and judicial magistracy. An anxious care of public money. An openness, approaching towards facility, to public complaint. These seem to be the true characteristics of a House of Commons. But an addressing House of Commons, and a petitioning nation, a House of Commons full of confidence, when the nation is plunged in despair, in the utmost harmony with ministers, whom the people regard with the utmost abhorrence, who vote thanks when the public opinion calls upon them for impeachments, who are eager to grant when the general voice demands account, who, in all disputes between the people and administration, presume against the people, who punish their disorders, but refuse even to inquire into the provocations to them, this is an unnatural, a monstrous state of things in this Constitution. Such an assembly may be a great, wise, awful Senate, but it is not, to any popular purpose, a House of Commons. This change from an immediate state of procuration and delegation to a course of acting as from original power is the way in which all the popular magistracies in the world have been perverted from their purposes. It is indeed their greatest and sometimes their incurable corruption. For there is a material distinction between that corruption by which particular points are carried against reason. This is a thing which cannot be prevented by human wisdom and is of less consequence. And the corruption of the principle itself. For then the evil is not accidental, but settled. The distemper becomes the natural habit. End of Nature and Functions of the House of Commons by Edmund Burke Read by Ryan Williams On the Art of Fiction by Willa Cather This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tom Merritt. One is sometimes asked about the obstacles that confront young writers who are trying to do good work. 
I should say the greatest obstacles that writers today have to get over are the dazzling journalistic successes of 20 years ago. Stories that surprised and delighted by their sharp photographic detail and that were really nothing more than lively pieces of reporting. The whole aim of that school of writing was novelty. Never a very important thing in art. They gave us, altogether, poor standards. Taught us to multiply our ideas instead of to condense them. They tried to make a story out of every theme that occurred to them and to get returns on every situation that suggested itself. They got returns of a kind, but their work, when one looks back on it, now that the novelty upon which they counted so much is gone, is journalistic and thin. The especial merit of a good repertorial story is that it shall be intensely interesting and pertinent today and shall have lost its point by tomorrow. Art, it seems to me, should simplify. That, indeed, is very nearly the whole of the higher artistic process, finding what conventions of form and what detail one can do without, and yet preserve the spirit of the whole, so that all that one has suppressed and cut away is there to the reader's consciousness, as much as if it were in type on the page. Millet had done hundreds of sketches of peasants sowing grain, some of them very complicated and interesting. But when he came to paint the spirit of them all into one picture, the sower, the composition is so simple that it seems inevitable. All the discarded sketches that went before made the picture what it finally became. And the process was all the time one of simplifying, of sacrificing many conceptions good in themselves for one that was better and more universal. Any first-rate novel or story must have in it the strength of a dozen fairly good stories that have been sacrificed to it. A good workman can't be a cheap workman. He can't be stingy about wasting material. And he cannot compromise. Writing ought either to be the manufacture of stories for which there is a market demand, a business as safe and commendable as making soap or breakfast foods, or it should be an art, which is always a search for something for which there is no market demand, something new and untried, where the values are intrinsic and have nothing to do with standardized values. The courage to go on without compromise does not come to a writer all at once, nor for that matter does the ability. Both are phases of natural development. In the beginning, the artist, like his public, is wedded to old forms, old ideals, and his vision is blurred 
by the memory of old delights he would like to recapture. End of On the Art of Fiction by Willa Cather Excerpt from On the Ultimate Origin of Things by Gottfried Leibniz, 1646-1716, published in 1697. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Excerpt from On the Ultimate Origin of Things in addition to the world or aggregate of finite things there is some unique being who governs not only like the soul in me or rather like the ego itself in my body but in a much higher sense for one being dominating the universe not only rules the world but he creates and fashions it is superior to the world and so to speak extra mundane and by this very fact is the ultimate reason of things for the sufficient reason of existence cannot be found either in any particular thing or in the whole aggregate or series suppose a book on the elements of geometry to have been eternal and that others had been successively copied after it it is evident that although we might account for the present book by the book which was its model we could nevertheless never by assuming any number of books whatever reach a perfect reason for them for we may always wonder why such books have existed from all time that is why books are at all and why they are thus written what is true of books is also true of the different states of the world for in spite of certain laws of transformation, a succeeding state is in a certain way only a copy of the preceding. And to whatever interior state you may go back, you will never find there a perfect reason why, forsooth, there is any world at all, and such a world as exists. And even if you imagine the world eternal, nevertheless, since you posit nothing but a succession of states, and as you find a sufficient reason for them in none of them whatsoever, and as any number of them whatever does not aid you in giving a reason for them, it is evident that the reason must be sought elsewhere. For in eternal things, even where there is no cause, there must be a reason which, in perduring things, is necessity itself or essence. But in the series of changing things, if it were supposed that they succeeded each other eternally, this reason would be, as will soon be seen, the prevailing of inclinations where the reasons are not necessitating, i.e., of an absolute or metaphysical necessity the opposite of which would imply contradiction, but inclining, from which it follows that by supposing the eternity of the world an ultimate extra-mundane reason of things, or God, cannot be escaped. The reasons of the world, therefore, lie hidden in something extra-mundane, different from the chain of states or series of things, the aggregate of which constitutes the world. We must, therefore, pass from physical or hypothetical necessity, which determines the posterior states of the world by the prior, 
to something which is of absolute or metaphysical necessity, the reason for which cannot be given. For the present world is necessary, physically or hypothetically, but not absolutely or metaphysically. It being granted, indeed, that the world, such as it is, is to be, it follows that things must happen in it, just as they do. But as the ultimate origin must be in something which is metaphysically necessary, and as the reason of the existing can only be from the existing, there must exist some one being metaphysically necessary, or whose essence is existence, and thus there exists something which differs from the plurality of beings, or from the world, which, as we have recognized and shown, is not metaphysically necessary. But in order to explain a little more clearly how, from eternal or essential or metaphysical truths, temporary, contingent, or physical truths arise, we ought first to recognize that from the very fact that something exists rather than nothing, there is in possible things, that is, in the very possibility or essence, a certain need of existence, and, so to speak, some claim to existence. In a word, that essence tends of itself towards existence. Whence it further follows that all possible things, whether expressing essence or possible reality, tend by equal right toward existence, according to their quantity of essence or reality, or according to the degree of perfection which they contain. For perfection is nothing else than quantity of essence. Hence, it is most clearly understood that among the infinite combinations of possibles and possible series, that one actually exists by which the most of essence or of possibility is brought into existence. And indeed, there is always in things a principle of determination, which is to be taken from the greatest and the smallest, or in such a way that the greatest effect is obtained with the least, so to speak, expenditure and here the time place or in a word the receptivity or capacity of the world may be considered as the expenditure or the ground upon which the world can be most easily built whereas the varieties of forms correspond to the commodiousness of the edifice and the multiplicity and elegance of its chambers and the matter itself may be compared to certain games where all the spaces on a table are to be filled according to determined laws, and where unless a certain skill be employed, you will be finally excluded by unfavorable spaces, and forced to leave many more places empty than you intended or wished. But there is a certain way of filling most easily the most space just as therefore if we have to make a triangle there being no other determining reason it follows that an equilateral results and if we have to go from one point to another without any further determination as to the way the easiest and shortest path will be chosen so it being once posited that being is better than not being or that there is a reason why something should be rather than nothing or that we must pass from the possible to the actual, 
it follows that even if nothing further is determined the quantity of existence must be as great as possible regard being had to the capacity of the time and of the place or to the possible order of existence exactly as tiles are disposed in a given area in such a way that it shall contain the greatest number of them possible from this it is now marvelously understood how in the very origin of things a sort of divine mathematics or metaphysical mechanics was employed and how the determination of the greatest quantity of existence takes place it is thus that from all angles the determined angle in geometry is the right angle and that liquids placed in heterogeneous positions take that form which has the most capacity or the spherical but especially it is thus that in ordinary mechanics itself when several heavy bodies act upon each other the motion which results constitutes on the whole the greatest descent for just as all possibles tend by equal right to exist in proportion to their reality so all weights tend by equal right to descend in proportion to their gravity and as here a motion is produced which contains the greatest possible descent of heavy bodies so there a world is produced in which is found realized the greatest number of possibles end of excerpt from on the ultimate origin of things by gottfried leibniz sixteen forty six to seventeen sixteen pleasures by aldous huxley this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We have heard a great deal, since 1914, about the things which are a menace to civilization. First it was Prussian militarism, then the Germans at large, then the prolongation of the war, then the shortening of the same, then, after a time, the Treaty of Versailles, then French militarism, with all the while a running accompaniment of such minor menaces as Prohibition, Lord Northcliffe, Mr. Bryan, Comstarkery. Civilization, however, has resisted the combined attacks of these enemies wonderfully well, for still, in 1923, it stands not so very far from where it stood in that giant age before the flood of nine years since, where, in relation to Neanderthal on the one hand and Athens on the other, where precisely it stood then is a question which each may answer according to his taste. The important fact is that these menaces to our civilization, such as it is, menaces including the largest war and the stupidest peace known to history, have confined themselves in most places and up till now to mere threats, barking more furiously than they bite. No, the dangers which confront our civilization are not so much the external dangers, wild men, wars, and the bankruptcy that wars bring after them. The most alarming dangers are those which menace it from within, that threaten the mind rather than the body in a state of contemporary man. Of all the various poisons which modern civilization, by a process of auto-intoxication, brews quietly up within its own bowels, few, it seems to me, are more deadly while none appears more harmless than that curious and appalling thing that is technically known as pleasure pleasure 
I place the word between inverted commas to show that I mean not real pleasure, but the organized activities officially known by the same name, pleasure. What nightmare visions the word evokes. Like every man of sense and good feeling, I abominate work. But I would rather put in eight hours a day at a government office than be condemned to lead a life of pleasure. I would even, I believe, prefer to write a million words of journalism a year. The horrors of modern pleasure arise from the fact that every kind of organized distraction tends to become progressively more and more imbecile. There was a time when people indulged themselves with the distractions requiring the expense of a certain intellectual effort. In the 17th century, for example, royal personages and their courtiers took a real delight in listening to erudite summons, Dr. Don's, for example, in academical disputes on points of theology or metaphysics. Part of the entertainment offered to the Prince Palatine, on the occasion of his marriage with James First's daughter, was a syllogical argument on I forgot what philosophical theme between the amiable Lord Keeper Williams and a troop of minor Cambridge logicians. Imagine the feelings of a contemporary prince if a loyal university were to offer him a similar entertainment. Royal personages were not the only people who enjoyed intelligent pleasures. In Elizabethan times, every lady and gentleman of ordinary culture could be relied upon at demand to take his or her part in a madrigal or a motet. Those who know the enormous complexity and subtlety of 16th century music will realize what this means. To indulge in their favorite pastime, our ancestors had to exert their minds to an uncommon degree. Even the uneducated vulgar delighted in pleasures requiring the exercise of a certain intelligence, individuality, and personal initiative. They listened, for example, to Othello, King Lear, and Hamlet, apparently with enjoyment and comprehension. They sang and made much music, and far away in the remote country, the peasants, year by year, went through the traditional rites, the dances of spring and summer, the winter mummings, the ceremonies of harvest home, appropriate to each successive season. Their pleasures were intelligent and alive, and it was they who, by their own efforts, entertained themselves. We have changed all that. In place of the old pleasures demanding intelligence and personal initiative, we have vast organizations that provide us with ready-made distractions, distractions which demand from pleasure-seekers no personal participation and no intellectual effort of any sort. To the interminable democracies of the world, a million cinemas bring the same stale balderdash. There have always been fourth-rate writers and dramatists, but their works in the past quickly died without getting beyond the boundaries of the city or the country in which they appeared. Today, the inventions of the scenario writer go out from Los Angeles across the whole world. Countless audiences soak passively in the tepid bath of nonsense. No mental effort is demanded of them, no participation. They need only sit and keep their eyes open. Do the democracies want music? In the old days, they would have made it themselves. Now they merely turn on the gramophone. Or, if they are a little more up-to-date, they adjust their wireless telephone to the right wavelength and listen in to the fruity contralto at Marconi House singing the Gleaner Slumber Song. And if they want literature, there is the press. Nominally, it is true, the press exists to impart information. But its real function is to provide, like the cinema, a distraction which shall occupy the mind without demanding of it the slightest effort or the fatigue of a single thought. This function, it must be admitted, it fulfills with an extraordinary success. It is possible to go on for years and years, reading two papers every working day and one on Sundays without ever once being called upon to think 
or to make any other effort than to move the eyes, not very attentively, down the printed column. Certain sections of the community still practice athletic sports in which individual participation is demanded. Great numbers of the middle and upper class play golf and tennis in person, and, if they are sufficiently rich, shoot birds and pursue the fox and go skiing in the Alps. But the vast mass of the community has now come even to sport vicariously, preferring the watching of football to the fatigues and dangers of the actual game. All classes, it is true, still dance, but dance, all the world over, the same steps to the same tunes. The dance has been scrupulously sterilized of any local or personal individuality. These effortless pleasures, these ready-made distractions that are the same for everyone over the face of the whole Western world, are surely a worse menace to our civilization than ever the Germans were. The working hours of the day are already, for the great majority of human beings, occupied in the performance of purely mechanical tasks in which no mental effort, no individuality, no initiative are required. And now, in the hours of leisure, we turn to distractions as mechanically stereotyped and demanding as little intelligence and initiative as does our work. Add such leisure to such work, and the sum is a perfect day, which it is a blessed relief to come to the end of. Self-poisoned in this fashion, civilization looks as though it might easily decline into a kind of premature senility. With a mind almost atrophied by lack of use, unable to entertain itself and grown so wearily uninterested in the ready-made distractions, offered from without that nothing but the grossest stimulants of an ever-increasing violence and crudity can move it, the democracy of the future will sicken of a chronic and mortal boredom. It will go, perhaps, the way the Romans went, the Romans who came at last to lose, precisely as we are doing now, the capacity to distract themselves. The Romans who, like us, lived on ready-made entertainments in which they had no participation. Their deadly ennui demanded ever more gladiators, more tightrope walking elephants, more rare and far-fetched animals to be slaughtered. Ours would demand no less, but owing to the existence of a few idolists, doesn't get all it asked for. The most violent forms of entertainment can only be obtained illicitly. To satisfy a taste for slaughter and cruelty, you must become a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Let us not despair, however. We may still live to see blood flowing across the stage of the Hippodrome. The force of a boredom clamoring to be alleviated may yet prove too much for the idolists. End of Pleasures by Aldous Huxley Hoster for the NAACP Anti-Lynching Campaign This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For the good of America. Do you know that the United States is the only land on earth where human beings are burnt at the stake? In four years, 1918 to 1921, 28 people were publicly burnt by American mobs. 3,436 people lynched, 1889-1922. For what crimes have mobs nullified government and inflicted the death penalty? The alleged crimes, murder, the victims, 1,288, rape, 571, crimes against the person, 
615. Crimes against property, 333. Miscellaneous crimes, 453. Absence of crime, 176. Some, 3,436. Why some mob victims died? Not turning out of road for white boy in auto. Being a relative of a person who was lynched. Jumping a labor contract. Being a member of the nonpartisan league. Talking back to a white man. Insulting white man. Is rape the cause of lynching? Of 3,436 people murdered by mobs in our country, only 571, or less than 17%, were even accused of the crime of rape. 83 women have been lynched in the United States. Do lynchers maintain that they were lynched for the usual crime? And the lynchers go unpunished. There were four lynchings in eight days after the failure to pass the dire anti-lynching bill, one of the victims being publicly burned at the stake. To maintain civilization in America and for the good name of the nation before the world, you cannot escape your responsibility. Will you not at least aid the organization which has been fighting for ten years to wipe out our shame? Send your check to J. E. Spingarn, Treasurer of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, 70 Fifth Avenue, New York City. And of Poster for the NAACP Anti-Lynching Campaign. Power of Third Parties Unattributed From the Popular Magazine, December 7, 1920 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Dale Grothman Power of Third Parties Unattributed last january when the politicians of the nation were hearing more than they wanted of mysterious plans for the formation of a hoover party and for the appearance of a labor party they looked into precedents and discovered that third parties had developed at various times a great capacity for giving trouble to one or both of the old line political groups the first of the new or third organizations was the anti-masonic party which put into presidential nomination william wirt in 1832 the best he did was to carry vermont but in 1844 the free soilers enabled james k polk to beat henry clay and in 1848 they lifted Tyler into the presidency over Cass. In 1854 
the know-nothing party sprang into life carrying religion into politics and won out in several states but could not elect a president after the civil war the greenbacks jumped the reservation later merging into another third party the populists later on still came the progressives or bull moosers whose desertion from the republican ranks made woodrow wilson president no wonder the regulars prick up their ears when they hear new party talk the end of power of third parties unattributed Tadeusz Kościuszko by Encyclopedia Britannica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Nater. Kościuszko, Tadeusz Andrzej Bonaventura, 1746 to 1817. Polish soldier and statesman, the son of Ludwik Kościuszko, sword bearer of the Palatinate of Brześć and Tekla was born in the village of Merechowszczyzno. After being educated at home, he entered the corps of cadets at Warsaw, where his unusual ability and energy attracted the notice of Prince Adam Kazimir Czartoryski, by whose influence in 1769 he was sent abroad at the expense of the state to complete his military education. In Germany, Italy, and France he studied diligently, completing his course at Brest, where he learned fortification and naval tactics, returning to Poland in 1774 with the rank of captain of artillery. While engaged in teaching the daughters of the Grand Hetman, Sosnowski of Sosnowica, drawing and mathematics, he fell in love with the youngest of them, Ludwika, and not venturing to hope for the consent of her father, the lovers resolved to fly and be married privately. Before they could accomplish their design, however, the wooer was attacked by Sosnowski's retainers, but defended himself valiantly till, covered with wounds, he was ejected from the house. This was in 1776. Equally unfortunate was Kościuszko's wooing of Tekla Żurowska in 1791, the father of the lady in this case also refusing his consent. In the interval between these amorous episodes, Kościuszko won his spurs in the New World. In 1776 he entered the army of the United States as a volunteer, and brilliantly distinguished himself especially during the operations about new york and at yorktown washington promoted kosciuszko to the rank of a colonel of artillery and made him his adjutant his humanity and charm of manner made him moreover one of the most popular of the american officers in seventeen eighty three kosciuszko was rewarded for his services and his devotion to the cause of american independence with the thanks of congress the privilege of american citizenship a considerable annual pension with landed estates and the rank of brigadier-general, which he retained in the Polish service. In the war following upon the proclamation of the Constitution of the 3rd of May, 1791, and the formation of the Reactionary Confederation of Targovica, Kościuszko took a leading part. As the commander of a division under Prince Joseph Poniatowski, he distinguished himself at the Battle of Zieleńce in 1792, and at Dubienka, July 18th, with four thousand men and ten guns defended the line of the bug for five days against the russians with eighteen thousand men and sixty guns subsequently retiring upon warsaw unmolested 
When the king acceded to the Targovicians, Kosciuszko with many other Polish generals threw up his commission and retired to Leipzig, which speedily became the centre of the Polish emigration. In January 1793, provided with letters of introduction from the French agent Perandier, Kosciuszko went on a political mission to Paris to induce the revolutionary government to espouse the cause of Poland. In return for assistance, he promised to make the future government of Poland as close a copy of the French government as possible. But the Jacobins, already intent on detaching Prussia from the anti-French coalition, had no serious intention of fighting Poland's battles. The fact that Kosciuszko's visit synchronized with the execution of Louis XVI subsequently gave the enemies of Poland a plausible pretext for accusing her of Jacobinism, and thus prejudicing Europe against her. On his return to Leipzig, Kosciuszko was invited by the Polish insurgents to take the command of the national armies with dictatorial power. He hesitated at first, well aware that a rising in the circumstances was premature. I will have nothing to do with Cossack raidings, he replied. If war we have, it must be a regular war. He also insisted that the war must be conducted on the model of the American War of Independence, and settled down in the neighborhood of Krakow to await events. When, however, he heard that the insurrection had already broken out, and that the Russian armies were concentrating to crush it, Kosciuszko hesitated no longer, but hastened to Krakow, which he reached on the 23rd of March, 1794. On the following day his arms were consecrated, according to ancient custom, at the Church of the Capucines, by way of giving the insurrection a religious sanction incompatible with Jacobinism. The same day, amidst a vast concourse of people in the marketplace, Kosciuszko took an oath of fidelity to the Polish nation, swore to wage war against the enemies of his country, but protested at the same time that he would fight only for the independence and territorial integrity of Poland. The insurrection had from the first a purely popular character. We find none of the great historic names of Poland in the lists of the original confederates. For the most part, the confederates of Kosciuszko were small squires, traders, peasants, and men of low degree generally. Yet the comparatively few gentlemen who joined the movement sacrificed everything to it. Thus, to take but a single instance, Karol Prozor sold the whole of his ancestral estates and thus contributed one million thalers to the cause. From the 24th of March to the 1st of April, Kosciuszko remained at Krakow organizing his forces. On the 3rd of April, at Ratswavice, with 4,000 regulars and 2,000 peasants armed only with scythes and pikes, and next to no artillery, he defeated the Russians, who had 5,000 veterans and 30 guns. This victory had an immense moral effect, and brought into the Polish camp crowds of waverers to what had at first seemed a desperate cause. For the next two months Kosciuszko remained on the defensive near Sandomir, he durst not risk another engagement with the only army which Poland so far possessed, and he had neither money, officers, nor artillery. The country, harried incessantly during the last two years, was in a pitiable condition. There was nothing to feed the troops in the very provinces they occupied, and provisions had to be imported from Galicia. Money could only be obtained by such desperate expedients as the melting of the plate of the churches and monasteries, which was brought in to Kosciuszko's camp at Pinchuf, and subsequently coined at Warsaw, minus the royal effigy, with the inscription, Freedom, Integrity, and Independence of the Republic, 1794. 
Moreover, Poland was unprepared. Most of the regular troops were incorporated into the Russian army, from which it was very difficult to break away, and until these soldiers came in, Kosciuszko had principally to depend on the valour of his scythemen. But in the month of April the whole situation improved. On the 17th of that month, the 2,000 Polish troops in Warsaw expelled the Russian garrison after days of street fighting, chiefly through the ability of General Mokronowski, and a provisional government was formed. Five days later, Jakub Jasiński drove the Russians from Vilna. By this time, Kościuszko's forces had risen to 14,000, of whom 10,000 were regulars, and he was thus able to resume the offensive. He had carefully avoided doing anything to provoke Austria or Prussia. The former was described in his manifestos as a potential friend. The latter he never alluded to as an enemy. Remember, he wrote, that the only war we have upon our hands is war to the death against the Muscovite tyranny. Nevertheless, Austria remained suspicious and obstructive, and the Prussians, whilst professing neutrality, very speedily effected a junction with the Russian forces. This Kościuszko, misled by the treacherous assurance of Frederick William's ministers, never anticipated, when on the 4th of June he marched against General Denisov. He encountered the enemy on the 5th of June at Szczekociny, and then discovered that his 14,000 men had to do not merely with a Russian division, but with the combined forces of Russia and Prussia, numbering 25,000 men. Nevertheless, the Poles acquitted themselves manfully, and at dusk retreated in perfect order upon Warsaw, unpursued. Yet their losses had been terrible, and of the six Polish generals present, three, whose loss proved to be irreparable, were slain, and two of the others were seriously wounded. A week later, another Polish division was defeated at Holm. Kraków was taken by the Prussians on the 22nd of June, and the mob at Warsaw broke upon the jails and murdered the political prisoners in cold blood. Kościuszko summarily punished the ringleaders of the massacres, and had ten thousand of the rank and file drafted into his camp, which measures had a quieting effect. But now dissensions broke out amongst the members of the Polish government, and it required all the tact of Kościuszko to restore order amidst this chaos of suspicion and recriminations. At this very time, too, he had need of all his ability and resource to make the external foes of Poland. On the 9th of July, Warsaw was invested by Frederick William of Prussia with an army of 25,000 men and 179 guns, and the Russian general Fersen with 16,000 men and 74 guns, while a third force of 11,000 occupied the right bank of the Vistula. Kościuszko, for the defense of the city and its outlying fortifications, could dispose of 35,000 men, of whom 10,000 were regulars. But the position, defended by 200 inferior guns, was a strong one, and the valor of the Poles and the engineering skill of Kościuszko, who was now in his element, frustrated all the efforts of the enemy. Two unsuccessful assaults were made upon the Polish positions on the 26th of August and the 1st of September, and on the 6th the Prussians, alarmed by the progress of the Polish arms in Great Poland, where Jan Henryk Dąbrowski captured the Prussian fortress of Bydgoszcz and compelled General Schwerin, with his 20,000 men, to retire upon Kalisz, raised the siege. Elsewhere, indeed, after a brief triumph, the Poles were everywhere worsted, and Suvarov, after driving them before him out of Lithuania, was advancing by forced marches upon Warsaw. 
Even now, however, the situation was not desperate, for the Polish forces were still numerically superior to the Russians. But the Polish generals proved unequal to carrying out the plans of the dictator. They allowed themselves to be beaten in detail, and could not prevent the junction of Suvarov and Fersen. Kościuszko himself, relying on the support of Poninski's division four miles away, attacked Fersen at Maciejowice on the 10th of October. But Poninski never appeared, and after a bloody encounter, the Polish army of 7,000 was almost annihilated by the 16,000 Russians, and Kościuszko, seriously wounded and insensible, was made a prisoner on the field of battle. The long-credited story that he cried, Finis Polonie, as he fell, is a fiction. Kościuszko was conveyed to Russia, where he remained till the accession of Paul in 1796. On his return on the 19th of December, 1796, he paid a second visit to America, and lived at Philadelphia till May, 1798, when he went to Paris, where the first consul earnestly invited his cooperation against the Allies. But he refused to draw his sword unless Napoleon undertook to give the restoration of Poland a leading place in his plans and to this as he no doubt foresaw bonaparte would not consent again and again he received offers of high commands in the french army but he kept aloof from public life in his house at berville near paris where the emperor alexander visited him in eighteen fourteen at the congress of vienna his importunities on behalf of poland finally wearied alexander who preferred to follow the counsels of czartoryski and kosciuszko retired to solothurn where he lived with his friend Zeltner. Shortly before his death, on the 2nd of April, 1817, he emancipated his serfs, insisting only on the maintenance of schools on the liberated estates. His remains were carried to Krakow and buried in the cathedral, while the people, reviving an ancient custom, raised a huge mound to his memory near the city. Kosciuszko was essentially a democrat, but a democrat of the school of Jefferson and Lafayette. He maintained that the Republic could only be regenerated on the basis of absolute liberty and equality before the law. But in this respect he was far in advance of his age, and the aristocratic prejudices of his countrymen compelled him to resort to half-measures. He wrote Maneuvers of Horse Artillery, New York, 1808, and a description of the campaign of 1792, in volume 16 of E. Raczynski's Sketch of the Poles and Poland. Pozen, 1843. End of Tadeusz Kościuszko. Thomas Cole's Journal, 1834-1835, excerpts from the Life and Works of Thomas Cole by the Reverend Louis L. Noble, 1856. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. November 5th, 1834. Memory is but a leaky vessel. The purest spirit is most likely to escape and leave nothing but dregs behind. I have often regretted that interesting things of daily occurrence and thoughts suggested by them fade away or are buried under subsequent accumulations thus rendering my experience very narrow 
it is desirable to have it as wide as possible with this view i intend to record some of the passing incidents and thoughts of my life that i may look back to the experience of the past and be amused if not instructed november sixth last night i dreamed that i was descending a precipitous mountain and had to cling to roots and shrubs to aid me in the descent one shrub towards which i had stretched my hand attracted my admiration by its beauty i paused to gaze at it as i gazed i perceived to my horror that it was a serpent coiled in an attitude to spring upon me how this dream is like many of the realities of life objects the most beautiful and which we desire to clasp are often fraught with poison this afternoon in company with miss b note his wife subsequently i took a walk through a favorite dell which we call the vale of tempe a little stream winds between two wooded hills having a meadow-like margin here and there is a little pool of pure water in which are numbers of small fishes that lead one may suppose a quiet and contented life a spirit of tranquillity seems to dwell in this little valley we gathered mosses noticed the beautiful effects of sunlight and shadow on the now almost leafless woods and conversed on days past when the woods were in their glory and of a distant and dear friend my sister who was with us the first time we visited this sweet place while we were there we heard the shouts of a company of men rejoicing at the defeat of their political enemies their party was victorious november eighth today i commenced packing for my return to new york it is rather a melancholy business after my summer in the country i always go to the city with a presentiment of evil i am happiest in the country in the city although i enjoy the society of my family and of artists and other persons of taste and refinement yet my feelings are frequently harrowed by the heartlessness and bad taste of the community the ignorant criticisms on art and the fulsome elogiums that so often issue from the press upon the vilest productions i also dislike fashionable parties i have either not confidence enough or small talk to shine i escape from them with as much delight as if just liberated from a jail i made a small circular diagram of colors today it reminded me of an experiment i have long wished to try and have thought a good deal about the idea was suggested by something i read when a boy i do not know where it is what may be called the music of colors i believe that colors are capable of affecting the mind by combination degree and arrangement like sound it is evident that there is an analogy between color and sound and with study and experiment it might be traced through all its ramifications 
i am not aiming to prove the analogy but to show that there is plausibility in the theory that an instrument might be constructed by which color could be played and which would give to those who had cultivated their taste in the art a pleasure like that given by music if i attempted to make an instrument i should try the experiment with six colors and their semi-tints the instrument might be played by means of keys like those of a piano except that instead of their moving hammers to strike strings they might lift when struck dark or black screens from before colored compartments transparent compartments with either sunlight or artificial light behind would perhaps produce the most brilliant effect november twenty fifth a fortnight has now elapsed since i left catskill and so much has my time been occupied that i have had no leisure to write a line although some things of interest have occurred how i regret the country with its delightful tranquillity here is nothing but turmoil my mind is distracted with a thousand cares and although i have commenced painting yet it is not with love this day two years ago i returned from europe the day was delightful and after a tedious voyage of seven weeks from leghorn it is not surprising that almost everything i saw gave me pleasure well nigh a four years absence made the shores of the bay its white buildings and the approaching city very welcome to my eyes as its roar came across the waters upon my ears accustomed for so long a time to the sounds and solitudes of the ocean it was deeply impressive we had come from the pathless deserts of the sea this was our first hearing of the mingled voices of the multitude and the din of wheels and footsteps in the stony streets january twenty fourth eighteen thirty five the wings of time are heavier and heavier laden as he flies each hour brings its own trouble without dissipating that of the past this reconciles one to death rest is welcome to the weary soul oh that i had wings like a dove for then would i flee away and be at rest although pain and trouble may accumulate as we pass along hope sheds a light upon our path and brightens like a star as the darkness deepens in the depth of night we see not the earth around us while there are visible splendors in the fields of heaven so divine joys shine from eternity when trouble flings a gloomy obscurity around the things of time this afternoon i walked down to the battery to see the sunset for the first time since i left the country where i daily watch him it was glorious the water perfectly calm not a cloud in the sky like a golden dome the sun lingered a moment on the horizon and then sunk as if by the wand of an enchanter from the sight i count the winter days for they are slow-footed but the summer days which i enjoy in the country fly too quickly to be counted february twenty fifth 
my soul dwells in the mortal tenement and feels the influence of the elements still i would not live where tempests never come for they bring beauty in their train i sigh not for a stormless clime where drowsy quiet ever dwells where crystal brooks with endless chime flow winding through perennial dells for storms bring beauty in their train the hills below the howling blast the woods all weeping in their rain how glorious when the storm is past so storms of ill when passed away leave in the soul serene delight the gloom of the tempestuous day but makes the following calm more bright to mr alexander new york march twenty sixth eighteen thirty five my dear sir about the picture you must not be surprised if a large one about seven feet long makes its appearance on your coast not as a sea serpent but as a tornado if you do not see this in a week or two you may expect me in boston next summer when i will do something for your pastem favor the tornado i speak of was painted in the summer before last it is sketchy but i believe you are fond of such can you yet be called happy i hope so and that you will long continue so we will speak about the ladies when i come you will perhaps find my heart more adamantine than you suppose i am in the midst of thinking about moving i intend to spend my summer in catskill your friend thomas cole april seventeenth eighteen thirty five i am once more in the midst of preparation for the country within a few days i shall leave for catskill my favorite haunt my anticipations in coming to the city last autumn were not very pleasing the realities have been sad the sickness of my father and mother has loaded me with care and anxiety interruptions of various kinds have frequently occurred many things have conspired to destroy the tone of mind necessary for the successful pursuit of my profession i have scarcely done anything not finished a single picture i have made an outline of the third of the series but it is unsatisfactory and i shall commence another choice days are passing away without my being able to apply myself so entirely to my art as i should wish but i will not repine nor anticipate evil he who has made me and given me the capacity to rejoice in the beauty of his works will i humbly trust continue to me his bounteous goodness and oh may i pursue the art i love with an undivided mind may my works be worthy the scenes and subjects i would choose to depict arrived in catskill april twenty third snow on the mountains and everything bearing a wintry aspect on the sixteenth of may i went down to new york to the annual meeting of the national academy of design i also read my lecture on american scenery before the new york lyceum in consequence of embarrassment i read very badly on the thirteenth i returned with my sister sarah 
the country still has a wintry appearance the snow yet lingers on the mountain tops when will the summer come may twenty fourth the spring has come at last we have had a few days truly delightful the softest temperature the purest air sunshine without burning and breezes without chilliness soft and cloudless skies the mountains have taken their pearly hue and the streams leap and glitter as though some crystal mountain was thawing beneath the sun the swelling hills with their white and rosy blossoms blush in the light of day the air is full of fragrance and of music oh that this could endure and no poison of the mind fall into the cup may twenty eighth today my feelings have been cruelly wounded he whose affections extend to many is like a wide-spreading vine in the forest it is exposed to peril in proportion to the number of trees upon which it depends one by one they are liable to fall either by the axe or the tempest or by the rot silently eating at the core and leave at last the poor vine with all its fruit and foliage prostrate on the earth cast off the bands that bind thee now each strand is steeped in pain thus spake a voice i made a vow to break them all twas vain may thirty first i did not go to church to-day i should have spent my time more profitably if i had i read a little wrote and walked and looked at the landscape in the evening i took a walk on the road to the village of athens which for half a mile from mr alexander thompson's is my favorite morning and evening walk the south wind blew strongly and dark masses of cloud moved across the twilight sky the heralds of approaching storm a leaden hue overspread the vale the woods and the distant mountains how contagious is gloom a flow of melancholy thoughts and feelings overwhelmed me for a time i thought of the uncertainty of life its bootless toil and brevity the south wind i thought would still continue to blow and bring up its dark clouds for ages after my works and all the reputation i might gain had faded away and become as though they had never been swept by the wing of time into oblivion's gulf and shall it be shall the spirit that mysterious principle unknown even to itself that vivifies this earth and generates these thoughts sink also into the gloomy gulf of non-existence nor feel again created beauty nor see the nature that it loved so much it cannot be the great originator the mighty one the unspeakable hath not created for purposes vain and useless this power of conceiving this wish and longing after immortality this hope this faith which gives an energy to virtue and raises in the breast these lofty aspirations this fear of sinning of deception and delusion no 
there are no fallacies with god to prove that if not to disprove all existence would be to render all things doubtful june first monday morning the storm has passed the day breaks over the earth in freshness and in beauty in the east sullen and dark is the retiring storm in the west the deep green mountains rise into the pure blue around their summits float the light white clouds like hope the bosom of reality end of thomas cole's journal eighteen thirty four eighteen thirty five excerpts from the life and works of thomas cole by the rev lewis l noble eighteen fifty six read for librivox by sue anderson Excerpt from The Tragic Sense of Life by Miguel de Unamuno, 1864-1936. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Chapter 1. The Man of Flesh and Bone. singular judgments have the value of universal judgments the logicians say the singular is not particular it is universal man is an end not a means all civilization addresses itself to man to each man to each eye what is that idol call it humanity or call it what you like to which all men and each individual must be sacrificed for i sacrifice myself for my neighbors for my fellow-countrymen for my children and these sacrifice themselves in their turn for theirs and theirs again for those that come after them and so on in a never-ending series of generations and who receives the fruit of this sacrifice those who talk to us about this fantastic sacrifice this dedication without an object i want to talk to us also about the right to live what is this right to live they tell me i am here to realize i know not what social end but i feel that i like each one of my fellows am here to realize myself to live yes yes i see it all an enormous social activity a mighty civilization a profuseness of science of art of industry of morality and afterwards when we have filled the world with industrial marvels with great factories with roads museums and libraries we shall fall exhausted at the foot of it all and it will subsist for whom was man made for science or was science made for man why the reader will exclaim again we are coming back to what the catechism says question for whom did god create the world answer for man well why not so ought the man who is a man to reply the ant if it took account of these matters and were a person would reply for the ant and it would reply rightly the world is made for consciousness for each consciousness a human soul is worth all the universe someone i know not whom has said and said magnificently a human soul mind you 
not a human life, not this life, and it happens that the less a man believes in the soul, that is to say, in this conscious immortality, personal and concrete, the more he will exaggerate the worth of this poor transitory life. This is the source from which springs all that effeminate sentimental ebullition against war. True, a man ought not to wish to die, but the death to be renounced is the death of the soul. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, says the gospel, but it does not say whosoever will save his soul, the immortal soul, or, at any rate, which we believe and wish to be immortal. And what all the objectivists do not see, or rather do not wish to see, is that when a man affirms his I, his personal consciousness, he affirms man, man concrete and real, affirms the true humanism, the humanism of man, not of the things of man, and in affirming man he affirms consciousness, for the only consciousness of which we have consciousness is that of man. The world is for consciousness, or rather this for, this notion of finality, and feeling rather than notion, this teleological feeling is born only where there is consciousness. Consciousness and finality are fundamentally the same thing, if the sun possessed consciousness, it would think, no doubt, that it lived in order to give light to the worlds, but it would also, and above all, think that the worlds existed in order that it might give them light and enjoy itself in giving them light, and so live. And it would think well. And all this tragic fight of man to save himself, this immortal craving for immortality which caused the man Kant to make that immortal leap of which I have spoken. All this is simply a fight for consciousness. If consciousness is, as some inhuman thinker has said, nothing more than a flash of light between two externities of darkness, then there is nothing more execrable than existence some may espy a fundamental contradiction in everything that i am saying now expressing a longing for unending life now affirming that this earthly life does not possess the value that is given to it contradiction to be sure the contradiction of my heart says yes and of my head that says no of course there is contradiction who does not recollect those words of the gospel lord I believe, help thou my unbelief. Contradiction, of course, since we only live in and by contradictions, since life is tragedy, and the tragedy is perpetual struggle without victory, or the hope of victory. Life is contradiction. The values we are discussing are, as you see, values of the heart, and against values of the heart reasons do not avail for reasons are only reasons, that is to say, they are not even truths. There is a class of pedantic label-mongers, pedants by nature and by grace, who remind me of that man who, proposing to console a father whose son had suddenly died in the flower of his years, says to him, Patience, my friend, we all must die would you think it strange if this father were offended at such an impertinence for it is an impertinence 
there are times when even an axiom can become an impertinence how many times may it not be said para pensar qual tu solo es preciso no tener nada más que inteligencia footnote to be lacking in everything but intelligence is a necessary qualification for thinking like you End footnote there are in fact people who appear to think only with the brain or with whatever may be the specific thinking organ while others think with all the body and all the soul with the blood with the marrow of the bones with the heart with the lungs with the belly with the life and the people who think only with the brain develop into definition mongers they become the professionals of thought and you know what the professional is you know what a product of the differentiation of labor is take a professional boxer he has learned to hit with such economy of effort that while concentrating all his strength in the blow he only brings into play just those muscles that are required for the immediate and definite object of his action to knock out his opponent a blow given by a non-professional will not have so much immediate objective efficiency but it will more greatly vitalize the striker causing him to bring into play almost the whole of his body the one is the blow of a boxer the other that of a man and it is notorious that the hercules of the circus the athletes of the ring are not as a rule healthy they knock out their opponents they lift enormous weights but they die of thesis or dyspepsia if a philosopher is not a man he is anything but a philosopher he is above all a pedant and a pedant is a caricature of a man the cultivation of any branch of science of chemistry of physics of geometry of philology may be a work of differentiated specialization and even so only within very narrow limits and restrictions but philosophy like poetry is the work of integration and synthesis or else it is merely pseudo-philosophical erudition all knowledge has an ultimate object knowledge for the sake of knowledge is say what you will nothing but a dismal begging of the question we learn something either for an immediate practical end or in order to complete the rest of our knowledge even the knowledge that appears to us to be most theoretical that is to say of least immediate application to the non-intellectual necessities of life answers to a necessity which is no less real because it is intellectual to a reason of economy in thinking to a principle of unity and continuity of consciousness but just as a scientific fact has its finality in the rest of knowledge so the philosophy that we would make our own has also its extrinsic object it refers to our whole destiny to our attitude in face of life and the universe and the most tragic problem of philosophy is to reconcile intellectual necessities with the necessities of the heart and the will for it is on this rock that every philosophy that pretends to resolve the eternal and tragic contradiction the basis of our existence breaks to pieces but do all men face this contradiction squarely 
End of excerpt from The Tragic Sense of Life by Miguel de Unamuno, 1864 to 1936. Uncle Sam's Last Big Lottery by F. A. Miller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Saturday Evening Post, July 9, 1904. Uncle Sam's Last Big Lottery. When President Roosevelt signed the proclamation opening the Sioux Indian lands of the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, he made possible the transformation of 382,000 acres of wild and uncultivated land into one of the most productive and quickly populated sections of farmland in the United States. That this possibility is already realized, and that all previous records for travel to a new land of promise will be broken by the Rosebud Movement in July of this year, is clearly apparent from the great number of inquiries received by the United States Land Office at Chamberlain, South Dakota, and by the Western Railroads. Probably never before in the history of the Northwest has there been an equal interest in the opening to settlement of any other tract of government lands. The reason for this intense interest are not far to seek. The cities of the East and the Central West are closely crowded. These centers of population contain a large class of discontented inhabitants. A struggling multitude, weary of the dreary turmoil and competition of the denser communities, they are anxious to acquire farms on their own, the products of which will support them in comfort, provide for their children, and ensure for themselves in their declining years a substantial competency. Perhaps a still larger class attracted to the opening of the Rosebud Reservation is recruited from the juniors of the American farmers. Certainly the junior farmer will be numerously in evidence and will make a model settler. His father has done well and prospered on a farm in one of the central states and would gladly give each of his boys a good start on the highway to independence. But he finds that land in their home county has quadrupled in value since he settled, and that to buy farms there for his son does not appear to be the wisest investment. The opening of Uncle Sam's big land lottery, however, offers an ideal opportunity for the farmer's son. Trained on the home farm, backed with sufficient capital to make his first payment of one dollar an acre on a hundred and sixty acres, and perhaps double that amount for necessary buildings, implements, and other items of equipment, he starts under peculiar advantages in a state whose fertile farms have given it a prominent rank. In a recent letter to me, Governor Charles H. Harriot of South Dakota concisely covered the subject under consideration in these words. Here the fortunate homeseeker may secure some of the best land in the Northwest. Here homes may be established, not in some far-off wilderness, but adjacent to organized prosperous communities, having the advantages of modern rural civilization. On every quarter section of Rosebud Reservation land, before next Thanksgiving Day, will be found some enterprising homesteader. Several houses and churches will spring up as if by magic. The hunting grounds of the Indian braves will soon be the scene of marvelous activity and prosperity. 
during the last six years south dakota has produced annually more wealth per capita than any other state in the union why because we have the energy intelligence enterprise and natural advantages land on the installment plan uncle sam evidently imbued with the spirit of the times has provided that the sale of these newest bargains shall be made upon the modern installment or easy payment plan a dollar down and seventy-five cents a year on each acre for four years in a general way covers the advertisement of this federal installment offering no fee whatever is required to register for one of the quarter section land bargains but those who are fortunate in the drawing and make final entry must pay the land office fees amounting to fourteen dollars for a hundred and sixty acres in addition to the first payment of one dollar an acre in the opening of the rosebud reservation there will be no picturesque and chaotic race from the border line with horses bicycles and automobiles as pacemakers uncle sam has tried this undignified and barbaric experiment in opening other reservations and has decided to submit the question of selection to chance rather than to speed and violence to those who anticipate a mighty rush and a quick grab for the best lands he will say back to the land office there will be no race today." it is unnecessary to quote the act of congress or the president's proclamation opening the rosebud reservation to settlement in order to show just what must be done to obtain one of these farms of a hundred and sixty acres the clearest statement of all the rules and qualifications come from the government land commissioner at chamberlain south dakota and is in brief as follows none but persons qualified to make entry will be permitted to register for the rosebud lands in gregory county south dakota qualifications to make homestead are not the owner of more than a hundred and sixty acres of land in any state or territory a citizen of the united states native born or naturalized by first or second papers over the age of twenty-one years or the head of a family bona fide intentions to make entry and comply with the homestead laws of the united states for own use and benefit and not directly or indirectly for the use or benefit of any other person has not since august thirtieth eighteen ninety entered under the public land laws of the united states a quantity of land which with a legal homestead would make more than three hundred and twenty acres has not heretofore perfected or abandoned an entry under the homestead laws of the united states honorably discharged soldiers and sailors of the civil or spanish-american wars or their widows may by power of attorney appoint an agent and furnish him with a copy of discharge or other competent evidence of military service and honorable discharge such agent can register for one person so appointing him only and for himself no person will be permitted to register more than once or in any other than his true name any person who shall transfer his registration certificate will thereby lose all benefits of the registration and will be precluded from entering or settling upon any of said lands during the first sixty days 
as soon as registered each person will be given a certificate of registration which will entitle him to go upon and examine the land this certificate must be preserved and presented with application by those entitled to make entry dates of registration july fifth to july twenty third nineteen o four both days inclusive places of registration chamberland yankton fairfax and bonesteel south dakota manner of registration in person at the time and places mentioned drawing for right of entry begins july twenty eighth nineteen o four at chamberlain and continues until the names of all persons registered have been drawn each person will be notified by postal card at the address given by him when he registers of the drawing of his name and of the time he must present his application to make entry the drawing will be made under the supervision and management of the secretary of the interior through the commissioner of the general land office and a committee appointed by him every safeguard to ensure fairness will be adopted it is not essential that the persons registered shall be present at the drawing unless they wish no one will gain or lose anything by the time place or order of his registration persons whose names are drawn thereby secure the right to make selection of the lands and homestead entry therefore in the order of drawing beginning with number one entries begin august eighth nineteen o four at nine o'clock a m in bonesteel south dakota the names of the first one hundred drawn will be called on that day the second one hundred on the following day and in like manner one hundred on each day until the lands are exhausted if at the time of considering his regular application to make entry it shall be found that any applicant is disqualified from making homestead entry his application will be rejected notwithstanding his prior registration within six months after making entry the homestead claimant must establish a residence in a house on his claim and thereafter reside continuously upon the land and cultivate the name for the period of five years no fee whatever is required at the time of registration each person must procure and execute the proper and necessary papers for registration for which notaries and other proper officers will be permitted to make a reasonable charge of twenty-five cents for each person the executed papers must be presented by the person to the registering officer those who become entitled by the drawing to make entry must at the time of filing their homestead applications pay the land office fees which amount to fourteen dollars for a hundred and sixty acres and in addition thereto one dollar per acre for the amount of land embraced in the application the fee for a soldier's declaratory statement is two dollars payable at the time of filing the same which must be in the order of the drawing at the end of two years three years four years and within six months after the expiration of five years respectively from the date of making entry the claimant must pay seventy-five cents per acre for the land embraced in his entry defaulting any payment at the time it becomes due forfeits all right to the land and the entry will be cancelled 
at any time after fourteen months of continuous residence and cultivation any person who shall have made a homestead entry for the lands in question may make a commutation proof upon such entry upon payment of the balance of the purchase price for the land then remaining unpaid the land office fees and commissions and in addition thereto one dollar and twenty-five cents per acre for the land for the privilege of such commutation upon lands filed upon within the first three months after august eighth nineteen o four the commutation price will be five dollars and twenty-five cents per acre besides fees and commissions no person will be allowed to settle upon any of the rosebud lands until after october eighth nineteen o four except those who shall make entry therefore pursuant to the act and proclamation is it worth it do you ask a thousand times yes the government has surrounded its bargain counter with only such conditions as will keep away those who would speculate in its generosity the provisions given above are all for the interest of the honest home seeker who would in good faith follow horace greeley's famous advice when the reader considers that the rosebud lands are bounded on three sides by splendidly developed farm lands with communities of well-to-do farmers owning substantial and permanent homes and farms valued at fifteen dollars to thirty-five dollars an acre he can best judge of the rich promise the immediate future holds in store for the settler on the rosebud reservation lands what the country is like the country to be opened is adapted to diversified farming the land is too valuable to be used to any extent for grazing those who wish land for a cattle range would do well to go directly west of chamberlain south dakota in lyman county where four hundred thousand acres of land are now open to homestead entry general farming in south dakota includes the growing of corn wheat oats hay barley rye flax of potatoes and other vegetables and of fruits the raising of poultry and the pursuit of dairying gently undulating prairie land forms about half of the tract to be open the other half is rough and broken the bottom lands along the missouri river and the lands near the numerous large creeks are narrow and the land is rough back from the river the uplands are seven hundred to eight hundred feet above the level of the missouri river or about two thousand feet above sea level with the exception of about a dozen sandy sections all of the three hundred and eighty two thousand acres are well adapted to farming near the missouri river the soil consists of a loose but rich black loam free from sand or grit and underlaid by a loose yellow clay the entire reservation is well watered from numerous creeks rivers and many permanent springs on the uplands an abundant supply of water is furnished from tubular wells and flowing artesian wells have been sunk along the missouri and whetstone rivers along all the streams considerable timber is found rainfall is ample and the climate is most delightful being identical with that of the eastern parts of south dakota and nebraska and northwestern iowa as a rule little snow falls before the holidays 
and cattle and horses find green grass until december the long indian summer gives opportunity to care for all crops during pleasant weather the heavy falls of snow during midwinter are followed by sunshine no greater tribute could be paid south dakota climate than to state that thousands of cattle subsist through the entire winter without shelter or without food other than the grass of the prairies it is natural for the prospective settler to indulge in the fancy of drawing first choice in uncle sam's last big lottery and prospectively to build not merely a castle but an entire city and yet there are populous towns and cities already built on the land recently opened to settlement in the territory of oklahoma those who were fortunate enough to secure at an initial cost of one dollar an acre the sites on which the towns of the rosebud tract will be founded undoubtedly will win a rich prize is there any way by which these town sites can be foretold none that i know of personal inspection of the reservation and a study of its local geography might best to fit the settler to choose the land he wishes when his name is drawn out of the hat at chamberlain in july there are but twenty four hundred quarter sections of the rosebud reservation to be given out by uncle sam the number who have already indicated an intention to register for those lands is more than twenty five thousand it is altogether probable that many who register but are not lucky on the draw will take up less valuable homesteads in lyman county or make other settlement in south dakota such an increase in the population means more than an increase in the number of farmers and cattlemen there will be a corresponding demand for carpenters blacksmith and other tradespeople the sudden transformation of an indian reservation into a civilized agricultural community presents unusual opportunities for success in every important trade calling and profession the rosebud reservation will be opened without scenes of disorder the abolition of the grand rush is a wise precaution to that end steps have been taken to prevent congestion of transportation facilities and to save the towns of chamberlain yankton gettys platte and others from having their populations multiplied many times during one or two days at the time of registry the railroads instead of making low rates for one or two days only announced them for every day from july first to twenty third inclusive with a return limit on the tickets of august thirty first for transportation to the reservation from the nearest town hundreds of horses and carriages have been secured the distances vary from six to twenty miles as chamberlain gettys platt and yanktum have for five years been central points in south dakota land movements their stage lines and livery facilities will be equal to the demand many settlers in going to the reservation will go directly from the government land office at chamberlain to the reservation by boat down the missouri river five steamboats will make this trip of thirty miles downstream and provide an easy means of access for those who do not care to ride or drive by road to appreciate the prospective development of the present indian tract it is worth while to consider what south dakota outside the reservation has done in recent years south dakota is long on wealth but short on people 
For the sixth consecutive year, South Dakota, in 1903, led all other states in the Union in the production of per capita wealth. This is a good sign for the prospective settler, who naturally prefers to avoid communities that are crowded and lands that do not yield rich and profitable returns. South Dakota is larger by one-fourth than the area of all the New England states, but its population is only about half a million people, or approximately six to the square mile. In studying the 1903 crop report of South Dakota, one is impressed with these returns of new wealth produced. Livestock, $35,950,164. Wheat, $29,422,900. Corn, $15,819,200. Hay and fodder, $13,840,000. Minerals, stones, and cement, $10,000,000. The fact that the 1903 table of products amounts to $14,939,264, more than the 1902 total, shows by what bounds the Sunshine State has been leaping forward. With the development of lands now held by the Indians, and with the anticipated increase in population this year, the production of new wealth during the next five years will undoubtedly make even the rapid progress of the last few years appear slow by comparison. End of Uncle Sam's Last Big Lottery Read by Mary in Arkansas